Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I don't ask John Burko to Planet Normal because I think you'd tear him to pieces. <laughs> Four. BBC News, never knowingly under hysterical. Three. Step away from the keyboard, you Twitter warriors. Two. The so-called National Education Union, or the No Education Union, as it shall henceforth be known. One. We have liftoff. So it's blast-off number nine, and here we are, touching down once again on Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. You there? (laughs) I'm here. I'm here. And me, Liam Halligan. A strong interview with retail entrepreneur Luke Johnson last week, Alison. Project fears the government's one true effective policy, the high street pioneer told us last week. Britain's the most scared major nation in Europe, and that's having a serious impact on our ability to bounce back from lockdown. But now the government seems to be changing its tune, sending out adverts telling us all to get out there and start enjoying the summer safely. Yes, he was. I thought Luke was great. I think people really appreciated listening to someone who's actually is trying to bring back these these businesses. And what we saw this week, Liam, you know, Marks and Spencer's letting 900 staff go. I mean, what Luke said is, you know, it is coming to pass. And I was in um, I was at King's Cross in London at the weekend. And there are these adverts saying go out and enjoy the summer. And then you actually have coming over the tannoy. Please do not travel at peak time. Stay safe to keep this nurse safe. Stay home. You know, all that stuff. So I think that the messages are still madly muddled. Yeah, very, very confusing. Um, very confused.com. <laughs> now, in your Telegraph column this week, Alison, your ire was raised, <laughs> to say the least, about teachers' pay. After months of parents struggling with homeschooling and teachers on what you call sunbathing leave since kids were sent packing on March the 20th, you were fuming, fuming that teachers are now in line for a 3.1% pay rise. It's amazing, Liam, isn't it? Anyone mention we're in the middle of a financial crisis? Has anyone noticed? I mean... (laughs) I I was I, I think I was in the shower when it said on the radio that there was going to be a pay rise for teachers and I won't tell you what happened to the soap. I mean, dear God. I mean, what are they what are they thinking? I mean, teachers haven't been at school. Most teachers haven't been at school since the 20th of March and arguably the schools were closed because so many uh, teachers were basically, you know, refusing to go to school that it became de facto that schools had to had to close. We are the latest in Europe. I think only Italy is going to be slower or as slow as us to reopen its schools. So there'll have been many teachers will have done 
absolutely sweet FA uh, until September. And even in September, they may not be convinced that it's safe enough to go back to the classroom, even though we've just had a study which says there has been no incidents in the world of a child infecting a teacher. So the um, standards of safety um, being demanded by the so-called National Education Union or the No Education Union, as it shall henceforth be known, (laughs) is absolutely astonishing. So I think what we've seen is this dreadful, um, many teachers, of course, we should say, have been brilliant, imaginative, resourceful, trying to do their best to keep, you know, the kids with material coming through. But I've heard from a huge numbers of parents who've said that they've, you know, they've had nothing. And how about a pay rise for parents, Liam, who are trying to work and do the teacher's job in their own kitchen table? A pay rise for parents. I got two school age kids. My third kid's at university, as you know. Mm. So I've got two school age kids. You know, our house is very much Grand Central Station in terms of their friends coming through and all the rest of it. And uh, in a socially distanced way, of course. Of course. Honor, of course. Um, <laughs> and I think the picture is mixed. There has been some really good teaching going on, not just independent schools, but state schools as well. But there has been a real lack of teaching in some instances. I think I think the National Education Union, so-called, uh, has really overplayed its hand here. Mm. They've been incredibly obstructionist about going back to school. It's never going to be, quote, totally safe to go back to school because, you, you know, you could have a car crash, right? You could be hit with a meteor. We all have to take the leap. And the thing is, the teaching unions, to which many teachers are frustrated with their unions, though they're scared to say it, as you say in your column, the teaching unions seem to be so determined to put up reasons why they can't go back to school. And that, of course, holds the whole economy hostage Mm. because you've got millions of households with school-aged children. The childcare implications of the schools still being in some kind of uh, limited, restricted um, uh, way, the economic implications are enormous. And I think the government should just get really heavy and say, Obligatoire. Obligatoire. Well, which is what, of course, President Macron <laughs> said. And in Australia, Scott Morrison, straight talking Aussie PM, yeah. just basically said, you're not going to keep, you know, as you say, hold the country to ransom. Parents need to work, need to put food on the table and they can't be educating their kids at the same time. But what what's going on with the government, Liam? I mean, why are they feeling at this point they haven't given the nurses a pay rise although the nurses are in the middle of a three-year deal I think they haven't given care workers all these people in terms of risk from COVID okay teaching as a profession as an occupation is seven from the bottom of the chart and right at the top we've got delivery drivers supermarket workers all these you know pub staff all those people All of those people have either kept going through the pandemic or they're back now. How are the pubs open and the schools closed? And what is the government thinking of giving teachers a pay rise? And my suspicion is that it's a bit of a sweetener to say, pretty please, could you please go back to the classrooms in September? Well, what kind of politics is that? Does that strike you as being strong or weak? It does seem odd to be giving um, a pay rise uh, paid for by the state 
to employees that are employed by the state so have far, far, far more job security mm. than the 80% of the population that's not employed by the state. Again, we're not down on all teachers. You know, step away from the keyboard, you Twitter warriors, but we must be able to call out when teachers aren't doing their job and far more teachers have failed to perform well during this lockdown than is commonly, in my view, than is con commonly uh, acknowledged, even by the politicians. And would they be pulling this stunt, the unions, if if Corbyn was in number ten? I think it's a, I think it's a way, a rather gleeful way of undermining a conservative government. And our education is on the floor. There was a University College London study a few weeks ago, and that said that two point three million British children have had little or no education since the end of March, middle of March. Wow. Think about that. Think about that. And those are some of the, you know, most underprivileged children, aren't they? They're not the ones whose parents are organising, you know, private Zoom classes and so on. These will be children who are totally dependent on school and they will have missed more than half a year by the time the teachers deign to go back into the classroom. And as you say, we must be very clear that there are many teachers and head teachers who have been absolutely trying to do their best. Actually, it was very interesting this week, Lee, and we had a bit of a breakthrough on BBC News, which, as we know, has been, uh, you know, pandemic, panic, central, <laughs> you know, shroud waving. Back in the shower. Yeah. Turn it to cold <laughs> before you blow up. <laughs> well, you know, BBC News, you know, never knowingly under hysterical for all the, you know, all the things, you know, you're going to die, you're going to die, stay indoors. But even on Sunday night, BBC News actually had a sensible piece of proportional reporting on the comparative risks from of COVID poses to different age groups. And of course, the vast majority of deaths, you know, 90% of deaths are over 70, 75. A very, very small number of deaths are in the younger age group. I've always said to you, I thought that the bulk of working age people could have carried on and we should have shielded Definitely. the elderly. But the one fact that jumped out was from the ages of five to 14. This is the BBC saying the chances of somebody dying age five to 14 is one in 2.4 million. Okay, those kids are safe enough to be in school, teachers are safe enough to be around them. And not only that, they are not safe to be out of school, because many are in not far from ideal homes. And, you know, we know all about that, don't we? 2.3 million School kids have got no education, according to that report you cited. Mm -hmm. That's one in four school kids. I've just done the sum. Yeah. One in four school kids yeah, in I this knew, country. I knew you were going to do that. I, I, I was wondering, is it one in five? That's what I do. Four. I mean, but I'm I, reduced. I'm like your you know, statistical <laughs> valet at this point. Crikey. I'm do, I, you know, I'm doing my best. You know, I'm doing my best. To <laughs> as we know, I've been doing my number crunching uh, in as far, you know. but uh, With your D and O level maths. Right. Moving e, on from school. E, excuse me. Excuse it, me. <laughs> moving on from schools, there's the bell, or it, it would be there if the schools weren't yeah, closed ding, ding. to the NHS. This is really what we want to talk about this week, I think, because you also wrote about a new government report that suggested lockdown itself could cause an extra 200,000 deaths, far more than have died from COVID itself, as we've been saying for months on Planet Normal, partly as a result of hospitals being so focused on tackling the virus. But you've also received countless emails, haven't you, from Telegraph readers saying that for all the praise lavished on the NHS, far too many GPs and other practitioners who could have been providing important care have actually been missing in action. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can hardly remember, Liam, 
in my career in journalism, it's, you know, back 30 years now of when I've had such an outpouring of distressing emails from, you know, listeners and readers saying, you know, my husband's been incredibly unwell. I've tried this. I've tried this. No one will call me back. You know, people who are really scared. I mean, the worst email I've ever opened was from Martin. It just began, Alison, I am dying. And Martin has a heart condition. And, uh, you know, he's been unable to, you know, cut through all this sort of thickets of red tape. And now, as he said, lots of the lots of the readers said, I'm trying to dig into my rainy day fund to go private. That's what they're all reduced to. Um, But even the private hospitals, which were requisitioned, you'll remember, Liam, for supposedly to take these non-COVID cases and you'd have thought they would have carried on with surgery and emergency things, but they largely haven't. And it's really... um, I did approach NHS England this week, um, talking to their press people, trying to get some facts and figures, how many doctors have been working, when a GP surgery is going to reopen. Well, I mean, you know, I've never been so patronised. And uh, the woman I spoke to said that I hadn't, they were disappointed I hadn't provided enough positive information in my column on the NHS. And I said, if you've got 700 emails in your inbox from people saying that they're dying or they've been unable to have treatment for gangrene, then you're not going to be very positive, are you? So I was pretty, pretty upset about that. And I, I think this is very much going to come out and we're going to hear more and more about this in the coming weeks. Let's just make a distinction. Of course, there are some people, and you and I both have people like this in our lives that we've been talking to our personal lives who haven't gone to hospital Mm. during the lockdown for non-COVID related reasons because they've been scared that the hospital will be full of COVID and full of infection. There are quite a few, particularly elderly people who Mm. haven't been presenting, as they say, in medical circles. But the emails that you've received are about something different. It's about people wanting to get non-COVID related Mm. treatment, but they've been rebuffed by GPs or rebuffed by hospitals that are very, very, very focused on COVID to the exclusion of other treatments. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I mean, some people have been given a diagnosis and and the treatments just come, that's just stopped, absolutely dead. That's it. Um, the medication they're on isn't right. They ring up and say, can I have other medication? No, that's not available. Um, there's just a sort of, there's just a brick wall. And you think, I know from friends who are working in the health service that hospitals are empty. Many, many departments are empty. So you wonder what they're up to. Now, especially for you, Liam, I read this week um, the 54-page initial estimate of excess deaths from COVID-19 report. I do this so you don't have to. Um, (laughs) Tell me your... That's very close to I do this because you're not brainy enough to. (laughs) I think if you're sensible, you can't be asked would probably be. But you know me, I've I've become obsessed. I know that last week you said I was Tippi Hedren, but I I decided this week what I'm actually is Velma in Scooby-Doo. You are Velma in (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Why did I know you'd be able to do a Scooby? I just knew you'd be able to do that. So here am I with the... Scoops! But here am I with the, you know, tedious facts. And, uh, you know, they they sort of knew. I mean, it's interesting what, what, what they were predicting at the beginning. I mean, they thought that there would be obviously some impact on the, on the NHS, but it, they don't seem to have thought that cancer services would shut down. They just thought that there would be, you know... 
that if the NHS was overwhelmed, then, you know, some of these services would be affected. But as we know, outside of London, the NHS has never been overwhelmed, as we know, because the giant Nightingale hospitals, which were brilliantly put up in, you know, a manner of um, in a matter of days by, you know, Royal Engineers and the army and so on. So the NHS wasn't overwhelmed. And I know I suppose you could be accused of saying, well, it, you know, it was a crisis. Yes, it is a crisis. But now the, the crisis that's coming down the line is going to be much worse. And there are not just they're not it's not just going to be older people who've been very unwell who are going to die. What's going to happen is younger people with cancers which weren't picked up and mm. you can go very quickly from stage one to stage three or four mm. so i suspect i'm afraid that the next you know 12 months are going to be 12 months two years are going to bring some you know quite heartbreaking stories hello i'm christopher hope but my pals call me chopper and you can too just dropping into my second favorite podcast tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! I think with this new report, the government is trying to get ahead of this story to to a degree, acknowledging that there will be lots of deaths, not from COVID itself, but from the lockdown. But you had a conversation this week, didn't you, that lifts the lid on an even bigger scandal? Yes, I did. And last week, you listeners will remember that uh, we read out a, an email from a district nurse telling us a bit about, you know, the experiences she'd been through trying to protect her patients in this really difficult time. Um, and we thought that it would be really nice to ask her maybe if she could tell us a bit more about it. So I got in touch and she was very keen to share her anger and distress on behalf of her patients. So we've called her Holly. Liam, that's not her real name. Holly lives in the southeast of England with her husband and her two sons. And we have altered her voice because, as you know, from having done reporting on the NHS in the past, they they can be pretty uh, uh, vengeful and aggressive with members of staff who yeah. Uh, try to tell the truth about the service. But it was an amazing conversation. I was so uh, grateful to speak to her. And this is what Holly told me. So welcome, Holly, to Planet Normal. Lovely to have you, uh, a a real person from the normal world. How are you? (laughs) Thank you. I'm happy to be talking to you, Alison. So we saw a report this week that said that more than 200,000 people could die from the impact of lockdown and protecting the NHS. Mm-hmm. Does that figure surprise you? No, not at all. And I don't think it'll surprise and most people in healthcare, to be perfectly honest. We've been saying for months now that services just aren't running at anywhere near normal capacity and we're building up more problems than COVID has caused by a mile. Like the amount of patients, uh, we had a lot of deaths in my area, 
but we're going to have an awful lot more um, from cancers that are going undiagnosed, from strokes that haven't been treated. And it, and it cuts both ways. We have hospitals that didn't want patients to come in and we have patients who don't want to go into hospital because of, I, I think, what's been an awful amount of scaremongering from the government, unfortunately. Do you think it's been excessive, the scaremongering? Do you think people haven't got things in proportion? Definitely. If you're at home and you think you might be having a stroke or a cardiac arrest or you find a lump, you should be going into hospital. And that's forgetting about all the routine stuff that's been missed, all of the regular cancer screenings. And there was no reason why all of this couldn't have been being done. We have PPE now. At the beginning, there was a bit of a scramble for it. But by like mid-April, I would say most trusts had enough PPE to have continued to at least have run beyond the skeleton COVID system, which was all the hospitals seemed to be. And the hospitals were empty by all accounts, beyond the ICU and the COVID wards, they were empty. I think there was a middle ground to be struck between keeping the hospitals safe and when it became apparent we weren't going to get this massive overwhelming um, first wave, I think we should have started up services sooner. And they're still not being started. When you emailed me, you talked about trying to access services in the NHS for your patients and yeah. they just weren't weren't there. Can can you tell me about some of the things that were just shut? Well it was on it was pretty much everything to be honest. Um the health visitors and nobody except the DNs were in and um you could access people on the telephone and emails but you couldn't get people to come out and see our patients. And you can't do this stuff over the phone. The other massive piece missing for us was GPs. GPs were extremely difficult. You could get them on the phone. They were all answering the phone and doing telephone conversations. And they were trying to video call patients, which, I mean, for the vast majority of our patients, they don't know how to video call. You know, I had a patient with a suspected deep vein thrombosis. And, the, you know, the doctor's trying to video FaceTime her. And she's, you know, 75 with COPD. She she can't do that and she needed to just be seen but by a doctor. And this happened all the time. They just wouldn't come out. And when they did come out, they were in the full PPE that was supposed to only be used for COVID patients. I felt very, very, very alone in the community. In your view, do you think these other health professionals, I mean, you carried on working, could, yeah. could they have continued working? Yeah, of course they could. And that's what has really upset me during all this. And I mean, I know it's not health professionals, but social workers weren't going out and assessing children. They were trying to assess children over the telephone as well, which you can't do if there's a possibly abusive parent. And, and people have used it as an excuse, right? Oh, we're locked down, like we're isolated, so health professionals can't come in. That's the other thing, like patients have taken advantage of this. Where do you think the, the finger of blame can be pointed? Where, who was telling these people that they could just shut up shop? I would have assumed it came from the top. Like, I, I don't know the answer to that question, to be perfectly honest. But I mean, in, to be told to not go to work, I would have thought it was the health board and also I think from what I've spoken to friends about the doctors union unions weren't very you know they were making a lot of noise about them being protected at all times um OTs and physios I would have assumed it was government or or health board mandated I, I'm really not sure but basically the, the the noise was do not have any contact that isn't absolutely necessary 
And I think people have lost sight of what's absolutely necessary. Like most the average Joe doesn't know whether or not it's absolutely necessary, do they? They need a no. doctor to say whether or not that lump or, you know, these symptoms are a problem or not. Well, I, I think what what was very upsetting but also moving was I think a lot of people were very altruistic and thought, yes. right, I mustn't burden the oh, NHS. I know. I know. And so they were doing their best, you know, like, you know I mean... People in my mum's generation, you'll know this, you yeah. know, the you don't want to go bothering the doctor. You I know. know. Oh, I, I know. I During the peak, I used to have patients cry when I came to the door. They were like, oh, I thought you weren't going to be coming. And I was like, we'll always come. We always will come. Snow, rain, we'll be here. But I understand why they felt like that, because most people weren't feeling, weren't doing that. You know, they couldn't get the people they ordinarily needed we had a patient on they were lovely and this man was 90 got this really nasty skin condition where your skin kind of massive blisters form the gp told his wife they're both 90 to just pierce them lance them with a needle (gasps) and leave because then if you lance them they, they shouldn't open up into big sores but of course they often just burst and they do and you're left with huge infection issues anyway they eventually got referred to us and then This man developed them in his throat and three different district nurses tried to get a GP out to see this poor man. They wouldn't come, they wouldn't come, they assessed him over the phone. Eventually he had Frank bleeding from his mouth during the night, got sent to the hospital, finally had an endoscopy and died on the table. And that man should have been in dermatology hooked up to IV steroids because of this skin condition, but dermatology wouldn't take him. Why not? Dermatology wasn't full. Dermatology is to treat people with serious skin conditions. So the failures there of dermatology, of the GP, he'd have been alive. And yes, he was 90, but he was a really healthy 90. Mm. And he died two days before his wife's 90. And she's the nicest old lady ever. And even she, she, and you know, the generation brought up to respect doctors and she was like, it was the GP, wasn't it? He wouldn't come. Mm. And she was like, they won't even tell me what what to put on the death certificate. And he's just dead now, dead from something that shouldn't have really, you know, he should have gone into hospital for a couple of weeks and he'd have been fine. Liam, Liam and I were shocked with reading your email when you said, I can think of at least four patients who died because they were not assessed properly by a GP or were not admitted to hospital because, yeah. God forbid, they catch COVID. <laughs> I mean, that patient, I think it wasn't, I think it was about catching COVID, yeah, but it was also about like worrying that they'd bring it into the hospital. So we have people who often have venous leg ulcers, which can be like really infected and can get... You know, they often need IV antibiotics and ordinarily they'll be sent in. Bed rest helps. At least two or three of them didn't go in and ended up with sepsis, dying, which, yes, they had the venous leg ulcers before COVID, but would they have died from those venous leg ulcers if they'd been able to go into hospital? No. You didn't think that the it was supposed to be about helping the NHS cope, mm. wasn't it? But yeah. did you think the capacity was ever really overwhelmed? No. Nowhere near. It wasn't. Like, it wasn't. Look at all the Nightingale hospitals. ICU got near to being overwhelmed in a few places, didn't it? Like London, but not in most places. The other sector, of course, that got overwhelmed was residential homes at the cost of well, keeping hospitals Well, I was just going to say, finally, can you 
Can you tell me what happened with this patients being discharged from hospitals into care homes? Can you just tell me briefly what happened? Yeah, I mean, it, it was so a lot of the care homes are council, right? So they've kind of got them over a barrel. And I remember going into one place in the morning and the manager was really upset. They're trying to make, this was on like April 10th, they're trying to, about, they're trying to make me take people from the hospital, even though they've tested positive. And I was like, oh my God, that's dreadful. They can't do that. I went back and our senior nurse was there because to be fair, she was trying to help out. And I explained this to her and she was like, no, it's a directive from the hospital. They have to take them. They have to. And they basically got bullied into taking them. And that particular residential home went on to be really badly hit by COVID to the extent that I remember going in one morning and just standing in the foyer. And like there were two empty beds overnight. And I was like, where's, I wouldn't say the names of the patients. And they just yeah. passed me in the night. Was it definitely COVID? Because they didn't pest everybody at that point either, right? So we'll never know. But, you know, they discharged people positive for COVID into their care. And then there'd been a wave of deaths. Mm. So if you could finally say just a couple of sentences about going forward, what do you think they should do now? Just open up? Yeah, open up and like apologise to everybody who's going to lose people because loads of people are. And if I could say anything, it would be to people to please try and access us if you need us. Like we're here and hopefully the other services are going to come back. And please, government, do not do this again because we've lost so many people. And we're only, and a lot of them are going to end up being young, healthy people who could have had treatable cancers and treatable issues, and they're going to die. And I, I think an awful lot more people are going to die because of that than have died from COVID. Sadly, Holly, it's been fantastic talking to you, and Liam and I hope that you might come back again because we're so keen to hear on planet normal from from you know oh, we it's hear nice from... to actually have our voices here because like i said most of us in the community i remember my friend saying with all the clapping she was like we've always been doing this like we've always been here and like yeah planet normal's always been here and we just need people to get back to normal like even mm. if this thing is here we have no choice but to carry on right and thank yeah. you for talking to me will you come back yes definitely <laughs> <laughs> So this is Planet Normal, and we've had a string of important high-profile guests, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, Richard Dearlove, Mervyn King, and all the rest of them. But the ultimate purpose, I think, of this podcast, Alice, and the reason why we set it up is to give a voice to ordinary people. What an absolutely fabulous guest. Isn't she wonderful? And I just had tears in my eyes when she was describing turning up on the doorstep and the people obviously thinking they were on their own. And she said, we always will come. And yeah. that, that's um, that's very moving because you think, yeah, well, some people didn't come, did they? But uh, the Hollies did. And uh, thank God for her. And if anyone, if I was giving out the pay rises, I know, know where that would be. We very much hope, Liam, don't we, that she will update us and, 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 and see how it's going and, and, and as she said, let's just open this thing up now because it's causing so much collateral damage. Telegraph subscribers can listen to that interview with Holly in full at telegraph.co.uk forward slash planet hyphen normal or click on the link in the episode description. You did talk to her for quite a long time, didn't you? A lot more than we just played there. Yes, I did. And she went into quite a lot of detail. Obviously, she's concerned about patient confidentiality, um, but she gave lots of examples of even quite simple things, you know, like 
podiatry wasn't available and she said diabetics get terribly bad toes and what I felt this day you know look we bandy about the word privilege don't we but it felt like a privilege for me I felt like I was there you know learning the truth about what it had been like to be in that job you know during this immensely difficult period and feeling her anger and frustration that people in the system who are paid a lot more than she is just didn't deliver while they were trying to do their best to deliver. And just tell us a little bit more, Alison, because we've had some incredible phone conversations about this in the last few days, about your dealings with NHS England, when you as a journalist, (laughs) as a Planet Normal co-pilot, you were putting the concerns that you were um, seeing in in the slew of emails that you were getting when you actually put them to the NHS. Yeah, they, they, I don't think they're very pleased to have their um, their behaviour challenged, Liam. To put it to put it that way, I was given slightly the runaround. I got in touch with the Department of Health, nothing to do with us, Gov, you know. And then it was on to NHS England. I I did have an extraordinary revealing email from um, a governor of one NHS trust, and he, of course, they all want to be anonymous because they're terrified. But he said our hospital is absolutely raring to go. We're COVID free, but we cannot um, NHSI, which you and I may not have heard of. It's one of the multiple quangos that surround these things. NHSI won't release the funds. So there's a hospital good to go. You know, he's telling me the funds aren't available. So I put these various questions to the press office at NHS England. And I was, you know, told off for not having included enough positive material in my column. (laughs) I wasn't feeling very positive. Can you tell? Halligan? What? <laughs> no, strange. So that's your job as a columnist to like you know, yeah, I, I, yeah. cover up what your readers are telling you. <laughs> Completely. Ignore the readers and just listen to the propaganda straight out of NHS England. Look, they're going to be trying to get their story straight. I asked them for facts and figures, which, you know, which hospitals were open, how many hospitals were open, what was the instruction about treating cancers and so on. And this woman was saying to me, oh, yes, that was, you know, that was fine we were continuing to treat cancer patients. And I said, well, why on Panorama did a senior um, uh, radiologist say that none of the machines had been working at all throughout? And then she went quite quiet about that. So so it wasn't, um, you know me, nice, mild-mannered Pearson, except when, <laughs> except when, you know, just getting, I'm not, I'm, we're not going to swear on planet normal, are we? But it was just... Um, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. And uh, I just, I think we're going to just keep banging on and we're going to get the story. We're going to just, you know, we're going to find out what happened. And it doesn't mean that there needs to be lots of blame, but it needs to be exposed that the system has let down potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And if the excess deaths are 200,000, personally, I think they'll go over that. And we also saw this week, Liam, um, Coming back to you, remember we had lovely Carol Sakura on. Yeah, the uh, the uh, the oncologist, the oncologist. That on Planet Normal a few so, episodes yeah, so, ago. So when I quoted Carol Sakura to the NHS England press department, the woman said, "Yes, but he works in the private sector. He doesn't work in the NHS." So that was him. So that was him rubbish. But you know that week after week, I've said, "Could the government just publish the COVID recovery figures?" Because you know, obviously the deaths have been incredibly sad and upsetting. But at least if we had the recovery 
recovery numbers, people might feel, you know, it's a, it's an illness, we'll get it, we'll, you know, we'll get better, which is the which is the story for the vast majority of people. But then this week, we discovered that um, Public Health England had had arranged a system whereby nobody recovers from COVID, because you're discharged from the hospital. And if you've got COVID, and if three weeks later, you get run over by a bus, you're put down as a COVID death. So the death statistics we've got now are... You are in England, but not in Scotland. Or Wales. No, so not in Scotland or Wales. So when people say, why are our stats so terrible? Well, obviously, you know, any number is terrible. But the the fact is, is ours are wildly inaccurate. And I know Carol Sakura, among others, has just been expressing absolute outrage that the, the, you know, this is fundamentally important, Liam, isn't it, for managing the pandemic, knowing where we are, you know, uh, telling people this is the number of people we've lost, but this is the number of people who've got better. They don't know those figures and they've made an absolute cock up of it, basically. It's my impression, certainly, that the statistics have been collected in differing ways, not just in different parts of the UK, as you just said, but between the UK and other particularly European countries. Uh, and England in particular seems to be... Uh, exaggerating the number of deaths from covid because even uh, as you say if you if you recover from covid and then you die of something else it still counts as you dying from covid and of course there's this comorbidity issue where mm. you may die of a heart attack but if you got covid it's then a death from covid even though it should be a death with covid which is obviously very different. But this will rumble on and on. Um, there will obviously be a public inquiry. Do keep emailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with your stories from the NHS. A couple more subjects, Alison. It's one year now since Boris Johnson took over as Prime mm. Minister in a Telegraph interview with our colleague Ed Malnick. We can put the link in the episode description. And then if you get hit by the pesky paywall, no excuses because our <laughs> wonderful Planet Normal listeners can get 30 days free access to the Telegraph completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash normal. He said he declared there's going to be no more lockdown. We can't afford to do another lockdown because the economic costs are too high. What did you make of that? Well, I was pleased to hear him say it. I mean... For lots of reasons, it hasn't been his finest hour, but I think there are there are signs he's he's bouncing back now. Um, I think he is taken aback by you know the the, the level of of deaths that we've had given the severity of the lockdown. It's funny, Liam, isn't it, to think I was I was uh, thinking back about this extraordinary year he's had. I mean, roller coaster doesn't do it justice, does it? I mean, it's total sort of. Is you it know, only been a year? I mean, God, only been a year, and it's <laughs> five like five years of politics in a year. <laughs> five years, well, even like ten years of politics. So if you think about it, I mean, I interviewed him when he was in the leadership race. He won the leadership decisively tremendously against in the face of massive, you know, dislike from a very strongly Remainer uh, media, won the leadership, prorogued parliament, you know, condemned by the Supreme Court for doing so, kicked out 21 Tory MPs who opposed him. Yeah, we were still him. in the age of Burko, weren't we? <laughs> we were absolutely. Can you make, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't ask John Burko to plan it normal because I think you'd tear him to pieces. I'm, I'm sorry. I actually, I've, <laughs> Your I've, inner carnivore would come to the fore, I think. I've actually got the John Burko book, which I put in the puppy's toy box and he has, he is, he has um, exerted his critical bingo has torn apart the John Burkow book. 
I'll, I'll, I'll post a photograph of it so you can see he's torn him limb from limb. So coming back to that, so if you think, let's just, let's think about this year. Boris secured a Brexit deal. They said it could never be done. He forced and he won a general election. He got Became divorced, a father again. Became a father, again. divorced, engaged again, again. And by January the 1st, he had you know, delivered Brexit in the face of, let's not forget, you know, the most phenomenal um, opposition from the establishment, from the BBC, from everyone. And I, you know, I think my trust in him has been dented, um, but I, you know, over this last few months, but you've written about this, Liam, you know, today or, you know, this week, you've written about the the whole EU shenanigans with the, you know, the trying to come up with a kind of rescue fund. And thank God we're away from that shower. If Yeah, I mean, this EU summit, they're calling it a Hamilton moment, a big uh, step forward in, in EU statecraft where they will be transferring money between countries, just like, say, the south of east of England might support the southwest of England through taxes and benefits, like Massachusetts may support Montana. Yeah, that's because the US is one country. That's because the UK mm. is one country. My own view is that it's far too small the transfers to keep the single currency together. And in the end, this is a, an attempt to keep the sort of grand projet of Europe on the road, even though the European public is increasingly sceptical. Mm. They may want to be part of a free trade area. They may want to be part of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a European Union of sorts, but they don't want to be part of one country uh, with one flag and one anthem. That's what a lot of the polling and you, shows. You talked about the the, the the sort of frugal five, wasn't it, of the northern states. I tell you what really made me laugh was that you um, Macron accused uh, Mark Rutte, who's Prime Minister of the Netherlands, of acting like Britain. I mean, yeah, the know, ultimate insult in Brussels insult. is to act like Britain because he's reflecting the concerns of the people in Holland who elected him to office. Absolutely. And who so by being a, a leader of a democracy and reflecting the concerns of those voters, and there are big concerns in the Netherlands about this, even though the Netherlands is very much a pro EU country, then that makes him not a good European. That shows the fundamental disconnect, in my view, mm. between democracy electing politicians to represent you and the European project, which often goes forward, whatever voters say, you know, vote one way in a referendum, have another referendum until you get the right result. That was very much what motivated people like me was that you could see that the independent, you know, the, 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 the member countries, it was literally, you know, go back and think again until you come up with the answer we agree with. And uh, and that, that really grated with any sort of democratic people. I mean, how much do you think we'd have been on the hook for if we'd had been, you know, contributing to this 750 billion bailout? Tens of billions, tens of billions uh, over a number of years, even though we're not in the euro. This, this, this slush fund of money that's going to go between countries, it's basically, however they dress it up, they've dressed it up as a kind of, you know, COVID rescue fund. It's basically an attempt to stop the single currency from imploding like it almost did in 2010 and 2011. Uh, and even if you're not in the euro, you still have to contribute, of course. So Is the Swedes right? are contributing. They're not in the euro. The Danes are contributing as well. And the UK would have to also. So, yeah, that is a major saving that we're making from not being in the the EU now. Um, let's put it on the side of a bus. <laughs> yes, let's put it on the side of a bus. 
So let's do some more health and safety emails because we're running out of time here, Alison. Oh, my goodness. This is another great theme of Planet Normal, isn't it? Mad health and safety from the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. Things that we did as kids that you wouldn't be allowed to do today. They keep on coming and they are a source to you and I, aren't they, of just absolute delight. I mean, you know, and we are talking about putting them in a book. So if you've got any crazy childhood escapades, do send them in. This was lovely from Sarah Stennett. Our father bought my sister and I, 12 and 14, an old black Ford Popular for £5 with a gear stick that went into the floor and on one occasion came off in my hand heading for a hedge at top speed. He (laughs) taught us to drive in about five minutes, where the pedals were and what for, then said, off you go. We passed these skills on to visiting friends, one on a cushion so she could see over the steering wheel. Spent every day of all future school holidays roaring round the fields, except for one week when grounded as my sister drove me round the yard riding on the bonnet. Never bored, no supervision, happy days. Wonderful. Check this one out from Bronwyn Brown. She emailed us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk to say, circa 1969, we were seven kids aged from three to 11. We spent the summers at our grandparents' farm. There was a motley collection of bikes, trikes, go-karts and scooters in one of the barns. None in good order. We used baler twine to tie them all together in a long line up the steep hill, out of the farmyard to spend a contorted few minutes getting this multi-articulated contraption turned around. We mounted up on command, all feet left the tarmac and off we set down the one in five gradient to the farmyard. <laughs> Wheels wobbling, no brakes and not always successfully navigating the whipping effect of the sharp left bend. <laughs> Did we do it in secret? Was it forbidden? No, my father recorded it all on his Sibby film. (laughs) (laughs) Completely wonderful, aren't they? Susan Senior said, As an ex-teacher, I am ashamed of my profession. Of our local secondary schools, one told parents of year 10s that they had done such a good job of homeschooling that they would not be bringing 75% of the year group back in September, only the 25% who had not engaged. Another parent told me of their year 10 son who, during lockdown, has only had three online lessons and since returning has had six hours of face-to-face with teachers. They emailed the head teacher who admitted it hasn't been great, has it? And I have to mention just one other, the fabulous email we had from Jackie and Nick, which we awarded smiliest email of the week, didn't we? <laughs> yes. Listening to Planet Normal is like drinking a bloody good gin and tonic. Hits the spot and calms the soul. I wouldn't know, Alison, would you? It is my favourite tipple, Liam, I have to say. So I was very thrilled to, because I always think gin and tonic has that healing sting, doesn't it, of the the, uh, the chink of ice and so on. So I cannot think... It does think- the strength you make them, half and half. <laughs> so that's it, voyage number nine, time to return again to the madness of the real world. Thanks so much to Holly for contacting us and to all of you who've written in. Uh, Alison and I read all your emails. And if you want to comment on anything we've said, please do write to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friends about it, your mother, your milkman, your personal trainer, you know, your tortoise, pass the pod. And we'd be so grateful if you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We're at almost 800 reviews. Let's make it more. As those reviews do help other people to find us. And when it comes to Planet Normal, like any good party, the more the merrier. We're we're, we're still, we've had a lot of takers 
for the uh, non-health and safety outing in which we hire a lorry and everyone sits in the back. So that's Halligan at the wheel. Um, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> We're all going to planet so normal. <laughs> no more bullshit for a week or two. <laughs> so this podcast is free to listen to on the Telegraph website or by sc- subscribing on your podcast app. Now, rather confusingly, subscribing to the podcast has nothing to do with subscribing to the Telegraph itself. It just means that the podcast is automatically downloaded to your phone or your tablet each week so you never miss an episode. And if you have questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the best ones, there's a very useful article explaining all those things on the Telegraph website. And we'll also put the link to that in the show notes of this episode. So as we leave Planet Normal and speed back to our mad, mad world, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, and to our brilliant editor, Theo Leloudis. And just before we go, hold on, I'd just like to say... (laughs) Happy birthday from me and I dare say thousands of you to my fabulous Planet Normal co-pilot. That's you, Pearson. Yes, and uh, it's a it's a landmark. So how old are you? Mm, uh, <laughs> well, because I wasn't able to have my big birthday bash, I'm still 59 for another year. So I've decided to treat it like a leap year. But I do to, to echo. How do I feel to to echo the marvelous words of Captain? Tom Moore when he was being knighted by the Queen if I kneel down I'll never get back up again (laughs) (laughs) well once we finish this close your laptop and go and have a well earned drink Alison is now off for a two week break but she'll be back soon of course and in the meantime Planet Normal continues next week I'll be joined by standing co-pilot Kate Hoey the former Labour MP for Vauxhall an all round fantastic person so until next thursday it's goodbye from me and happy birthday alison pearson and it's goodbye from him goodbye we love our pets but when the floor is covered in fur that's harder to love eufy x10 pro omni robot vacuum has powerful 8000 pa suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass plus the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance want to know more go to eufy.com that's eufy.com and discover x10 pro omni the best in class all in one robot vacuum for only 799 dollars